Thank you, uh, everybody, for joining. My name is Scott Edelson. You're joining the All Day Vinyl Podcast. I'm here with a very special guest, a man that needs no introduction, Nils Lofgren, member of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, Neil Young Crazy Horse, solo artist, Grin, all-around amazing dude, and Ringo's All-Star Band, of course. So thank you very thank much, you. Nils. I appreciate you being here and chatting. So let's uh, let's start from the present and we'll move move our way back a little. So first and okay. foremost, congrats on the new album, Mountains. Came out in July of 2023. So maybe you could uh, tell me a little about the impetus of this latest album. Well, you know, I'd, uh, of course, pandemic hit. And for the first time in my professional life, I went for three years without playing a gig. Um, you know, I play little clubs, play my own music, a lot of acoustic duo shows. Um, just for the pandemic hit, I did an actual band tour. The great band did a double live CD called Weathered. Really proud of. But uh, the little bars I play just weren't safe. My doctor, you know, I'm 72, got some health things. They said, you just can't go into those places with COVID. So all of a sudden, I mean, I love being home, love my wife, Amy and our dogs, my son Dylan's down the road, but I started feeling like, you know, that musical part of me was withering a bit. I go out to the garage studio, put on, you know, I get a good guitar sound, play blues, kind of blues karaoke to Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, Albert King. And I do that 20, 30 minutes a day just to kind of you know, play some blues. And, uh, but it was a scary time. And, and after a while, I thought, man, you got to do something professionally. Now, normally on the road, I, I get, I take my ideas, I have a notebook with some writing ideas, thematic ideas, and I work on them as songs and kind of move them forward. And I wasn't going to tour. So I just said, look, challenge yourself, make a record, write whatever comes out. A lot of stuff going on with the, you know, politics. Uh, a lot of craziness that I was getting flashbacks, kind of like a weird PTSD to the 60s with the Vietnam draft lottery. I was picked in the assassinations, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I lived in Bethesda, Maryland. So 90 miles off Cuba, they had nuclear weapons. They wanted to aim at me. And it was a uh, but all of a sudden I thought, well, I thought we had evolved past that. I thought we were doing better as a human species. And I was wrong. So I said, write a record and share it. Don't write dirty songs and agonize over which should come out. And I did that. I just wrote a record. Um, Jamie Weddle, my engineer and dear friend, I've been working with it for 20 years, did a great job, brought some equipment over to my garage. And it just chipped away at it easily, took my time, kept it very emotional and simple, made sure uh, before we recorded I could play and sing everything live. So the vocals are all live with a guitar, piano. And uh, it turned out a lot better than I thought it would. And, Interestingly enough, early on, I because I felt like there's mountains to climb I hadn't counted on in my 70s after 55 years on the road. And uh, months after I was working on this project, I knew I would entitle Mountains. Ed Mel, a dear friend, incredible artist here in Arizona. Uh, he's kind of like Mr. Mountains. He paints beautiful landscapes. He uh, was talking to me and Amy and said, exactly. He said, hey, I hear you're making a new record. I want to do all the art for you. So we were blessed. A lot of good things came together. I reached out to some great friends, David Crosby, Rest His Soul, Neil Young, you know, the 
Howard University Gospel Choir, Ryan Carter, uh, just a lot of great people. And of course, the great Cindy Mizell. Amy went and picked her up at the end of a Billy Ocean tour outside of L.A., brought her here for four or five days, sang her ass off as always. So a lot of good elements came about because uh, I was going to write what came out and share it no matter what. But I'm glad it came out as good as it did. Did this did the process of writing the record uh, differ from how you've done it in the past? Yeah, but I didn't. Um, I kept it a little more immediate and a little more emotional. And I pushed myself a little bit more. Uh, a classic example one morning, um, just in my, I, I would get on the road. Of course, the show's windy up. I can't sleep for hours. Uh, and I, I, you know, finally drift off four or 5 a.m. At home, I, I, I get up really early. I get up sometimes when in the dark, 5, 6 a.m. My big dog, Rose, our 105-pound dog, Rose, comes out, keeps me company, and I would write just calmly in my notebooks, look at old songs that might be appropriate. Rose, we just talked about you, giant dog. Yeah, that's Rose. Here, turn around and say hi. Hey, Rose. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Rose. I've got no treats. Sorry. <laughs> but anyway, uh, one morning I had this great uh, D35 Martin set up in the living room. Uh, it was a gift from James Kahn, Jimmy Kahn, the great actor. He, uh, I don't know why he gave it to me, mainly. Jimmy was a great musician, actually, sax, guitar, just could play anything really well. But he was like, I don't use it. I don't use it. If I give it to you, you'll use it. I said, yes. So he gave it to me. So I made an open G tuning, uh, fiddling around. I found this cool riff. And the night before, I'd stumbled on the title, Ain't the Truth Enough. Of course, looking at the madness on the planet, I'm like, can't the truth be enough? I thought it kind of was up until recently. I didn't want to do a superficial thing with it. And I thought I got to do something deeper with this, what I thought was a good title and really cool riff I found. And then, you know, my wife, Amy, who's been fighting on social media, Twitter, Instagram, mainly Twitter with, you know, for human rights, all rights, you know, children's rights and, you know, big battle with people that seem to think democracy is in the way of everything because, Having $10 trillion is not enough. I need more. That's the disease. I need more. But uh, I thought, well, what would happen if uh, a mother, a fierce mom, was dealing with a husband that just walked back in the door fresh from the January 6th insurrection? I thought, well, now that, because there's a war on women. There has been, and it's really picked up recently. And I thought that would be a deep theme wrote a song it took me a day i stayed with it i kept pushing myself it's like don't wait for inspiration keep writing and that kind of thing is how the record happened i didn't you know write anything i didn't feel great about but if it wasn't right i kept pushing instead of walking away coming back walking away coming back so that was different because i really wanted to get something to share that spoke to where i was at that's one of the Best songs on the record, I think. The video, we made a video if anyone wants to check it out. Ringo Starr, the great Ringo played drums, and he sent us the live footage of him playing drums, sang on it for me. Cindy Mizell sang her ass off because I needed a woman to play the, the part of the mother. And uh, just, you know, kind of a magical moment. Uh, I sent the track to Ringo because, uh, you know, I said, I'd love you to play on my record. And I, I thought I'd go to LA and we'd set up and play. Kevin McCormick, 
great bass player playing on the track. A couple others with Andy Newmark on the album. We once recorded a song in L.A. Um, uh, I forget for the album Silver Lining called Walking Nerve. And it was me, Ringo and Kevin live in a room. No baffles. Just power trio. It was magic. And I thought, I got to do that again. But finally, Ringo said, no, it's COVID. You got to test everybody. Studios dragging your shit from Scottsdale. Make a track that sounds good to you. Send it to me. I'll play on it. That's what we did. And I sent him the song, not knowing, you know, if he'd want to, because as a courtesy, I wanted to feel okay about it. And he called me the next day. Ain't the truth enough. He was singing it to me. I thought, well, that might be a good sign. And he said, I love it, man. Send it. I'll play. And he, he killed it. And, uh, you know, just back backroom musician stuff, Kevin McCormick, who I love. I said, look, Kevin, I got to I need you to play bass on this before I send it to Ringo. And Kevin said, send it. I will. But you have to promise me after Ringo puts drums on, I get to play the bass again <laughs> to Ringo. Star. <laughs> said done. So a lot of cool things, grassroots stuff. But it really came out great. and I'm proud of it. It's great. I want, you know, on the subject of Ringo, I want to read a, a couple of lyrics you wrote for We Better Find It, which are my favorite on the on the record. And it just speaks to the theme throughout of where we're at in society. You, you go, yeah, why does Ringo always says peace and love? Let's keep our hammers sheathed. If you must use them to beat sentence your raging brothers and try to heal, try to help them heal and breathe. Heal and yeah, breathe. It, it was funny. I, I called Ringo by the Hey, man, I took your peace and love off the Internet. Do you want to hear the track and approve it? And he said, all I said was peace and love. I said, yeah. I said, it's one of your songs. I said, yeah. I said, just use it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've been blessed to play in so many great bands. And, um, but yeah, you know, that was kind of a, like a, an adult nursery rhyme. It's a strange thing. Found like 40 kids at the uh, local uh, Phoenix choir school um, or chorus school they all sang great and it was just kind of from perspective of kids looking at us the adults mine in the store going what the hell are you doing why is all this you know genocide turmoil hunger poverty you got like 15 men that own 80 percent of the world's wealth what the hell and um i'm embarrassed as an adult I, i'm worried and I, I, I'm angry, and it just seemed like kind of a nursery rhyme about what the hell are you adults doing? And uh, it was great to have these 40 kids on it because it was really from their perspective asking us to get our shit together. Well, that sounds amazing. And, you know, on the, you know, the idea of greed and, and art and commerce, I've, I've, I appreciate it a lot uh, that you took the stand with Neil Young a couple years ago and taking your music off Spotify. And it's hard, I'm imagining, you know, you have a new record and it's not on Spotify. And that shows the real strength you have in your convictions and desire to keep the art and commerce yeah. pure. I appreciate it, man. Um, you know, met Neil when I was 17, 18 years old, played on After the Gold Rush. I befriended him and Crazy Horse on their first tour. Remains David Briggs, his producer did all the Grin records and a bunch of my solo stuff, uh, remain my two greatest mentors, Neil and David Briggs. Um, I was blessed, you know, six, seven years ago, Poncho wanted to get off the road after 37 brilliant years in Crazy Horse. And Neil asked me to step back in as an alumni, which I've done. And uh, I love it. You know, we made three records. 
and uh, played some shows. I hope some more coming up. But, um, you know, Amy, my wife Amy and I were like, hey, you know, Neil and Daryl are, are doing this thing with Spotify. We started talking about it. We called them, talked to, to Daryl, and they sent us the letter from 250 doctors, nurses, healthcare people. And, you know, there's all these politics. Like, I'm like, I don't get my information from TV about health. I listen to my doctors who I love and trust. I'm still wearing a mask. My immune system's low. I'm trying to protect you and me. You know, I, I've got COVID twice and I hated it. And I don't want to get it again. I don't want to share it. But Amy and I, like once we understood what this doctor's note said, like, hey, we're trying to save people's lives and you're doing this, you know, well, what if this and what if that? There's no what if this or that. We're doctors. Please stop you know, brainwashing people for your radio show and help us heal people. And I, I was like, man, we got to sign up on this with Neil. And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a sm small potatoes compared to artists like Neil Young, but you know, I'm, I've been in my, Amy and I have our own little cattle track road records. I think I parted ways with record companies in the early nineties, just have a website, do what I want, share what I want, pay for it all. You know, you go to a club, you play, you go out afterwards, you sign. Every time you sign and sell a CD, you put 10 bucks in your pocket. I've been uh, on the road 55 years. Not once have I received a royalty check from a record company. <laughs> Not once. Um, it's funny. We have a check on the wall from like uh, some, uh, you know, streaming royalties. I got one check for one penny. Oh, so man. we had to put that one on the wall. But anyway, it took Amy and I, you know, three minutes to realize what the letter said, call back, say, Neil, we're with you. Um, called our great um, uh, consultant and uh, helping us out with All, all Matters Music. Uh, we don't like the word manager. We've had some bad people managing us, but he's incredible, Tom Goldfogel. And uh, it only took him two or three days to pull my entire catalog off of uh uh, you know, Spotify. And it was just a statement standing with a brother in arms who's very knowledgeable and really invested an enormous part of his life trying to save the planet, humanity, all that stuff, especially with his uh, wonderful wife, Daryl. Uh, we become good friends and just, you know, it's a great family that, you know, one of my oldest musical families. And, uh, you know, to get to play with them on and off for the last five, six years has been beautiful. Amazing. I saw, I was at the Roxy show where you guys did, uh, everybody knows this is night. Yeah. Front row, <laughs> front, right in front. Amazing. I want to ask some questions about that, but I want to touch, touch on something you, you just said. You started with, right. ended with, with uh, Neil and David Briggs as mentors. And then you right. ended with saying, you know, Neil's dedicated his life to the, saving the planet and good for humanity. But what, what are the things, and maybe that's some of them, but what, what are the elements that Neil and Briggs really imparted on you as a 19 year old that helped shape you who you are now. And what is it that you feel they saw in you as a, a young kid and that allowed them to want to take you up in their, their wings? Well, you know, uh, when I met Neil, when I was 17, crazy horse, my band Grin, who was a big local act doing original songs, we'd struck out in some of the auditions in New York city. We were going to Los Angeles 
to look for a record deal in about three weeks time. And I walked, I, I'd sneak backstage to ask for advice, snuck in on Neil, crazy horse. Um, he was playing his guitar and I kind of pled my case. Any advice for going out to us? Well, do you have any songs? I said, yeah, hand me a guitar. I sang five songs from the first Quinn record. He said, wow, those are good. Can you hang out with us? And he got me a cheeseburger and Coke. And I watched four shows over two nights, spent the afternoons with him. Said, look me up when you get to L.A. And true to his word, he kind of took us under his wing, turned us on to David Briggs, his producer, who really was hands-on, produced our records, finally found a deal. I moved in with David after living in a rental house in East Hollywood, Normandy Avenue, under the freeway. And we made our way. But, you know, the thing back then, there was no video. You have to understand, there was no internet. A lot of people didn't even have answering machines. There was an immediacy and there was no distraction. Everything was, you know, you're not at a show looking at your camera, watching your favorite artist. You're just there. And there was a presence that I can't almost describe now living in this internet world that was so valuable. And living with David, I saw Neil four or five days a week. I mean, I just tagged along and, you know, Neil would come and play with us at the, uh, the watering hole there was called the uh, Corral, Topanga Canyon Corral. Funky, beautiful little bar. My band Grin became a house band and played there a few nights a week. Every Monday night, for people that lived in Topanga Canyon only, Taj Mahal and that great first band where Jesse Edwin Davis would play free. And of course, David and his, he was a pretty rough guy. You know, he could be rough. David and his buddies would chase out people trying to sneak in from San Fernando Valley. And they weren't polite about it. You know, get the hell out of here. You don't live here. And uh, it was just a beautiful thing. And it was very real and honest. Neil played with us one night. It was great. And so the next day we drive up to Neil's house. And, you know, this mentor thing, this is a good example of it. Um, I'm feeling like on cloud nine, jammed with Neil for a whole set. You know, we were a trio at that time, power trio. Go in, Neil's like, man, that was fun. Really enjoyed playing with, you know, the, the drummer is solid. You know, it was fun playing off of him and you. And, and then say, Nils, you need a better bass player. Fire your bass player. Get a new one. And I'm like, what? I'm here to enjoy the moment of last night. I'm not here to be educated <laughs> by these brilliant, you know, ruthless, savvy, young greats. And it was just a great example. Like, it's not like, you know, some guy in high school said, oh, yeah, that was good. Maybe you should. I said, it was Neil Young and David Briggs. He played with us on stage. So what was I going to say? I couldn't say anything. We went and got a better bass player. <laughs> And it's just there's there was an honesty and these guys are like big brothers. And I was around so much living with David that that kind of stigma went away where, of course, I was nervous and like, oh, my God, you know, trying to get something going. I'm a high school dropout. I can barely make a living, but I, my heart's in seeking this. And um, those two guys brought an honesty, but a friendship that really just in, indelibly stamped me. Like a year later, I'm 18. We're making this album after the gold rush. Wants you to be in the core band, playing guitar, singing piano. I'm like, wait a minute, what did you say? I'm not a professional piano player. But I w there was an honesty there. They said, look, no, 
We know you. We know you played classical accordion for 10 years. You won contests, you know, and um, we think you can handle the simple parts we want. And at that point, he just shut up and say, yes, thank you. You're scared. I practice constantly. They take lunch breaks. I never left what's called the gold rush upright that, you know, I've just played recently with Neil. You know, it shows the gold rush upright 18. Now I'm still playing it, you know, 50 years later. But um, I realize now, I don't know how much they thought it through, but Greg Reeves, extraordinary bass player. Uh, we got to be buddies and do these two guitar acoustic things together. He never released them. It was very beautiful, kind of Motown-esque, beautiful songs, Greg would write. But Greg was underneath, like Jamie Jameson School of Bass, a lot of movement, deep pocket, but movement, coloring the songs. And Ralphie, solid and simple, and me on piano, very simple and solid at my most creative. You know, I was deep into it. I, I worked and created things that were still out of the way and left enormous space for Neil's voice, his guitar, and the groove. And there was a spatial thing going on that maybe um, they thought that through and just, hey, let's throw Neil's on an instrument he doesn't know about to <laughs> keep it simple. Because, you know, you hire a, a great piano player. I don't even know if you could pay or coach them to play that simple, right? Because you get these ideas and these great songs. Anyway, it worked out beautifully, but very young age, I was lucky to have these two guys as mentors. And still to this day, I mean, I feel like Briggs is around every time we get together. You know, we just did a, a show recently. And, um, you know, Briggs is always there looking over our shoulder. We talk about him, Ben Keith, Elliot Roberts, a dear friend and manager who was in that room when I walked in on him way back when they're on their first tour. A lot of history. And, uh, you know, but 55 years on the road, there's been no more powerful imprint than at that early age, spending lots of time, years with Neil Young and David Briggs as mentors and, and you know, producers and fellow musicians. How did how did that experience working with uh, Neil Young and then obviously later with Bruce uh, change you or influence you as a band leader, as your own artist, as you make your own records? Well, you know, it's interesting, um, David. We piled into his VW Bug to go up to Neil's place way up at the top of a high hill for after the gold rush. We always cranked Creedence Clearwater Revival. That kill volume driving through the funky Topanga Canyons. But I remember still telling David, David, it's so neat not to be the band leader. Like all that work goes away. All those non-musical issues go away. I just show up and be a musician. And it was at a very young age, 18, I realized how much I loved being in a great band without having to lead it. I do understand most people that do what I do aren't interested in giving up that kind of control. I thrive on it because it lets me be a whole different headspace. Yeah, I'm in the band, man. <laughs> you know, I'm not telling people what to do. I'm not making decisions other than musically with, with whatever instrument is in my hands. I love that. And even, you know, Bruce, Bruce was steel mill um, and Grimm did an audition night for Bill Graham, in 1970. And I started following Bruce, going to his shows, establishing a, a friendship. And uh, even way back, you know, I would say at the Sunset Marquee in Hollywood before it became a big famous hip hotel with the whiskey bar. 
you know, but it was just a funky place. Musicians like they had a little kitchenette. Barney's Beanery was around the corner. Mm-hmm. Great watering hole with no windows. You could, you know, write, play video games. There was a laundromat across the street. I could do laundry and watch watch the door. <laughs> but um, you know, uh, Bruce and I we, we took some drives, listen to music, go up on a sand dune. And I remember long ago, much younger. He asked me about Neil, and I, I shared my experience of how much I loved not being the band leader, but being in a great band, and how I loved doing that as a break from being, you know, the solo artist. And I came back to my solo stuff recharged and more inspired. And uh, it was a big break from it, but it wasn't a break from music. I was still deep in music creating but not as the band leader I had to write everything dictate everything produce everything that was a huge and and bruce filed that away he filed that away you know he's a good filer <laughs> and of course years years later we stayed in touch i go see him play all the time loved him loved his songs still do but i think that has something to do with him you know giving me kind of an audition for a couple of days and getting the job in the band knowing how much how comfortable I was being in a great band and not having to, to lead it and not having to, you know, be even a second lieutenant, just be a guy in the band. I love that. So anyway, a lot of great stuff came and, uh, you know, the wealth of it, the seeds of it came from David Briggs and Neil Young's adventures that I had at a very young age. Amazing. And on, you know, you, you started that, that uh, answer with talking about Creedence Clearwater I, I listened to uh, some of the Rockality episodes, and you have one great one. I'm not going to spoil it, but of oh, you and Briggs oh, yeah. in the studio with CCR. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to take it back because those Rockality episodes, which you're doing, they're on your, your website. You could download them and stream these great stories of yours. You have an incredible memory of just details because some of those episodes you're talking about, like the food that you would eat after a show um, or restaurants. Are you, are you, yeah, and you mentioned Bruce files things away, and Neil Young obviously is an archivist. Are, are you like that, where you, you keep your, your past to trigger these memories, or is it all just in, in your body? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of both. There's some things I just can't remember, you know, because there was so much going on all the time for the last 55 years as a musician. But a lot of things, were, it was such an imprint on me that it was like a movie that got stuck in my head. And it's strange because I, 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 I still can remember being there. And of course, the Rock Alley stories I share, uh, for whatever reason, you know, I've been imprinted and uh, blessedly in very vivid, vivid memories. You know, there's another, well, you know, one of them, uh, you know, great stories about Jimi Hendrix opening for him on my 19th birthday. Uh, and, and we had three shows to open for Jimi Hendrix. Was He was the reason I thought I could be a, I wanted to try to be a professional musician. The Beatles and Stones kind of took me off classical accordion and exploded me through them into Stax Vault, Motown, the old blues, British invasion, American counterpart. But then I saw Jimi Hendrix and we played in teen clubs, great, you know, Animals, Hollies, all those great bands, Buffalo Springfield, Stax Vault, Motown. Nobody ever thought in the mid-60s where I grew up, it never occurred to us you could do that for a living. Never entered our mind. Saw Jimi Hendrix. 
I walked out of there kind of like in the twilight zone, like possessed, literally. Oh, my God. I, I may have to try to do that for a living. Oh, you can't do that. And it was kind of like <laughs> I'm a Gemini. So the two voices in my head were like, yeah, but I think I got to try. <laughs> and uh, try I did 55 years later. Anyway, that's a great story because, you know, playing for Jimi Hendrix opening act and he got an all area pass. So you get to sit on stage and watch him. And David Briggs, again, like Nils, it's your birthday. You got to go uh, knock on the trailer door, say hi to Jimi Hendrix. Oh, I can't do that. Well, yeah, I think you need to. It's your birthday. And the story goes from there. But I, I just was so lucky and blessed. And uh, that's, you know, one of the main things, even though in my mind, when I dropped out of school and ran away to Greenwich Village, I literally opened Yellow Pages, looked up a record company, took a subway, walked in, said, hi, can I talk to somebody? I need a job. <laughs> and some people would talk to me and say, what, what the hell are you doing, man? Where's your demo? What's a demo? Other people are like, get the hell out of here. You know, we're in a 17-year runaway getting a job here. I don't even know what you're thinking. Some people talked to me and it was very useful. Like, you know, and I learned learned at a very young age, you see it on American Idol. You know, you see it a lot on these shows that I love. You know, I don't sometimes I don't watch the backstory. Sometimes I'll just tape it and fast forward to the singer. Next singer. I don't need to hear the backstory. And um, you see a lot, some young people that uh, then they go to Hollywood week and all of a sudden somebody comes out. I remember this one 15 year old girl saying great. All of a sudden she's having trouble working with others. All of a sudden she can't remember the words. And you could hear her when the judges said, you're out. She was like, what do you mean? Well, this, this, that. And she was, and you could see the pro thought press process, which I understand like, well, you know, when I'm selling millions of records, I'll have the stylist and the person that'll, you know, show me the lyrics and have a teleprompter. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't get any of that shit until you get really good. And she walked off in a daze, not understanding. And I was lucky because at a young age, some rejection in New York, Gwyn did a, uh, an audition and did a winner in the drafty basin for the great Eddie Kramer, Hendrix's engineer. Didn't pass the audition. Wasn't Eddie. It was us. And so at a young age, I realized just because you love something so much has nothing to do or very little to do with getting a job doing it. And so between that and then Neil Young and David, I really got some hard lessons young that still, still to this day served me well. Amazing. When you when you ran away at 17 to, to pursue your career, was it a confidence or was it naivete when you look back on it that allowed you to to do such a thing? Is this a bold? No, I don't. I wouldn't use the word confidence. I mean, that was in there in the in the soup, but it was more. More of a strange kind of fear. I had great parents. Great parents, spiritual, cool. Um, you know, it was a great household. I'm the oldest of four boys. I love sports, played football, basketball, soccer, a lot of football. And, you know, all four of us had chores on the weekend. And, you know, who knows? I was 12. Hey, I don't feel like doing it. Okay, my dad. Here's my dad now. Okay, Nils, you're the big boss now. Well, you're part of a family. And uh, the deal is, 
if you don't sit there, don't want to do your chores, see your friends playing football in the court, will make court. You can watch them all day long. You cannot leave the house and play. Now, anytime you want, you do your chores. You're part of our team here, our family. You go play all day. Until then, you're not going anywhere. Sit. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm the big boss. I'm, okay, do I want to sit all day, <laughs> watch my friends play? And, of course, at some point, I go do my chores and get to go play. Um, it was a very different time. You know, a, a lot of – and I don't mean in a bad way, man. I, I understand growing up's hard. But, you know, we had our share of rough stuff with, let's say, Vietnam, the Cuban Missile Crisis, assassinations, civil rights marches. There was plenty of heavy stuff going on. But I was blessed to have these great parents that taught me a, a lot, too, that you got to work, man. You got to be part of. And all this stuff, when all of a sudden I saw Jimi Hendrix, I realized I'm not going to make it. Like I got, you know, I tried to get B's in school so I, my parents would be OK and didn't have to ground me or make me study more. So I had free time. Do your homework, get B's, go play sports all day long, do whatever you want with your own time. Be home for dinner. And um all of a sudden, with this possession, seeing Jimmy, I thought, I'm not going to make it through a whole senior year of school. I got to try to be a professional rock musician. I know nothing. I know nothing about it other than I love to play blues guitar and I'm writing songs. So I felt like, oh, man, I got to get going. But I can't. Like the only kids in my neighborhood, Bethesda, Maryland, that dropped out of school were juvenile delinquents. They knocked up their girlfriend. They were pumping gas, the corner station. And the next big chapter of their life, early chapter, was written already. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I can't leave school and stay at home. You know, the whole neighborhood is going to be like, you know, putting a lot of grief on my parents and judging them, which they did. So I wrote a long note, put it on my pillow, Sid Sithens, my good buddy in the band, shot. We were doing like Cream, Hendrix, imitations, you know, uh, power trio. Getting his VW van. Hey, drop me off here. I'm going to study for a test. I'll see you after school at rehearsal. Okay. Drops me off. I hitchhike to National Airport. Plane up. There was shuttles every hour on the hour. 15 bucks. You don't even show an ID. Just walk on the plane. 15 bucks. Took a subway to Greenwich Village, started staying on the street with the street kids. Like, again, getting the yellow pages, walking on record companies. I, I have to get something going as a professional musician. It was a, a possession of the kind that I, I knew I had to get going. I knew that was a dream I had to pursue. And I knew I couldn't get through a whole year of school. Um, went home eight days later. It felt like eight years. A lot of adventure. That's a whole other story that you'll see in Rockality. But um, my folks couldn't talk me into going back to school. I said, I'll leave. I can't bring this shame on you. I got to do this. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Nursed me back to health. I said, okay, here's the deal. We're very upset you're not going back at your diploma. We'd like you to do that. But we'd like you to you go to music college, all that. But we get it. This is what you got to do. So let's try this. Live at home. Do all your chores, obey all the rules, pay rent. It's not a free ride. And let's see how it goes. Because, you know, most parents would have been, you know, they would have just beat me back into school, said, hell with that music, rock and roll crap dream, get an education, go to college. But my parents saw me studying accordion since five years old. They knew I had this love 
of music and a gift I did not ask for from them, some higher power. And it worked out. You know, I started calling the next day, you know, in the yellow pay, every fraternity, every bar. And in Washington, D.C., much like a lot of towns in the late 60s, there was a lot of work. There were no video. There were no DJs. A lot of work for bands. Didn't pay. I mean, you made a little, but it was work. So uh, I got grinned together. We started playing anywhere and everywhere for free if we had to. I wrote songs. We became a big local band, struck out in New York, went out to L.A. And I was walking on musicians all the time. You know, at Baltimore Civic Center, I got my this cool Telecaster. I got my first guitar. Hey, Jeff Beck needs this guitar. I just got to give it to him and I'll come right back out. And, you know, I'm little, I'm 5'3". I'm not, you know, bullish or, or you know. Uh, and, and a lot of times things were loose back then. And some security guard might be, well, all right, but get right back here. And I'd go in. Of course, I'd never come back and, you know, try to meet people and ask for advice. And some people gave me it. Neil Young handed me a guitar, let me sing, had me spend two days with him watching four shows. I mean, I love Neil from Buffalo Springfield. I had no idea he was that great as a guitar player and a songwriter until I saw those four Crazy Horse shows with Danny Witten. And then, you know, a couple of years, thanks to Briggs and Neil, uh, Jack Nitsche and I joined Crazy Horse to make the definitive Crazy Horse record with Danny Witten alive. All of a sudden, Ry Cooter's sitting there standing next to me playing bottleneck. I mean... Had a lot of great stuff going on at a very young age that imprinted me. And yeah, I can be lazy. I, I can, but, you know, the hard lesson is like, just because you love it, don't think it means you're going to make a living at it. You got to work hard. And even then, that may not happen. But thanks to a, a talent I didn't ask for, I got from my folks and again, some higher power, not the religious kind. I don't like organized religion at all. But I believe there's some higher power up there has something to do with things. And, um, you know, they say the gift of free will. That's a hard sell, right? When you look at all the tragedy on Earth. But my dad was a philosopher. We talked a lot about a lot of cool stuff at a very young age. Uh, you know, like the whole Thoreau thing. And I used to put things up on my wall because, you know, my hair was over my ears. and The school had a dress code. You couldn't do that. And. I was like, I want to grow my hair long. I know you can't. You got to be in school. And, and that, yeah, but Thoreau said, follow my own drugs. I said, yeah, yeah, but this is not your home. And you're not paying the bills. Go go, follow your own drum. Make a living. Have your own home. Grow your hair as long as you want. Here, there's rules. You know, don't confuse. And it was great because it was this good natured kind of give and take argument with an amateur philosopher, my dad, who was serious about it. He studied the greats. Throughout history, you know, back to Aristotle, all the Plato, on and on. We'd talk, we'd write things down, we'd discuss. And it was just another, um, you know, great lesson and an early um, path to some, some maturity that I got from my dad and mom. Uh, and, you know, that, that kind of helped me handle what Neil Young and David Briggs were throwing at me at a young age, too. And your, your younger brother, Tom, famously joined you in Grin a couple years later. Did your parents have a crazy case of deja vu at that point? Well, another, another big plus to my parents. So, you know, here I am, high school dropout. I got Grin, I'm making a living. <clears throat> uh, we realized after our second album, we need another person. You know, we're not a power rock trio. We, there's all these different sounds on our record. Simple records, but there's another sound. 
So, you know, we came, Tommy was my first guitar teacher. I'm playing accordion. My dad had a beat up acoustic. Tom starts learning chords, starts showing me. Uh, my ninth grade variety show, I played Beatles medleys on the accordion. And uh, another funny thing, there's a band there, three guys, Howie Queller on drums, who's still a dear friend. He's a doctor in Texas. Three guys, they're called the Radical Five. Like, well, that's pretty crazy. A band called the Radical Five with three guys. I joined the band as an accordion player. And uh, Tom started showing me guitar chords, and I started working hard on guitar. But, uh, you know, it, it was just... Um, uh, tell me what the question was. I'm sorry, you're talking about my brother. Your Tommy. brother, your brother joining Grin and oh yeah, yeah, parents. So, so great, great thing. After uh, it's funny, I was um, in my basement, you know, listening to albums. I mean, the, nobody thought anything of it. Like you get together with kids now, nobody has time for anything, right? We get together, totally normal day for young teenagers. Okay, here's these two albums. You put it on, you turn the lights down, you light a candle, you listen to the whole side, you flip it over, you listen to the whole other side. Not one person had to do anything. Nobody ever said, oh, I got to do this or I got to go play. It was like, no, we're listening to the whole album. And we loved it. And we did this all the time. Nobody thought anything like for 50 minutes, this is all we're going to do. Teenagers. What the hell? That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so we go to our folks. Uh, it's funny. I'm down in this basement where I listen to all these albums. And I think we need another person in grip. Danny Witten flew back from L.A. to be the other person in Grimm. Mm-hmm. To our sadness and horror, at that point, Danny was so down with drugs and alcohol. <clears throat> we realized, I mean, he was still kind of singing okay, but he couldn't. He couldn't handle it. You know, we were playing a lot and touring. And we realized tragically, my dear friend, Danny Witten, who made the great Crazy Horse album with us and Jack Nisic producing, was not physically up to the job of being in Grimm. Okay, who's next? One day, just being a, a nutty kid, I'm in the basement. Um, I, I call Neil's office and get Stephen Sills' number. I call Stephen. Hey, Stephen, it's Nils, because I knew them through Neil, probably still national him through Neil. Um, oh, I know how he's doing. I didn't know him well, but he knew me. I, I got this great little band, Grin, and we really need a fourth member, you know, and we really love you. You're so great. Hey, what do you think about joining my band, Grin? <laughs> oh, love that. And Stephen, Stephen, who's famous for, I mean, he, you know, his own description would be sometimes he can be kind of an abrasive ass. I mean, he could have just ripped me to shreds, but he didn't. He said, well, you know, Nils, I'm not going to come to Maryland and be in your little three-piece band. I'm down in Florida, Florida, Biscayne Bay, working at Criterion Studios, making my second solo album with a big band. Why don't you come down and play with us for a month? So here I go, play with uh, Steven on his second album, And uh, that was a beautiful experience, you know, to be working with him. You know, the sessions wouldn't start till midnight. We'd play all through the day, go back when the sun's up, this beautiful rental house on Biscayne Bay. It was a great experience. But anyway, I was still, you know, thank you, Stephen, for not taking my face off for suggesting you join Grin. (laughs) 
So we go to my folks. I realize Tommy's great, sings great, playing piano too. And it took a lot of um, a comfort, uh, an extraordinary comfort level, which we had in our home, to go to our mom and dad and say, look, this is going to blow your minds, but we want Tommy to join Grin. And no, we're not going to, he's not going to be a high school dropout like your first son. How about if Tommy goes to summer school, works really hard, gets his GED high school diploma, has his diploma, would you let him skip his last year of school and join Grin? They did. I mean, who does that? You know, it was like this strange kind of deal we proffered, me and Tommy, and they went for it. So, I mean, that's another big, I mean, I would have to say as much as David Briggs and Neil Young imprinted me, my folks were a bigger influence. Encouraging music, paying for 10 years of lessons, knowing this was a love that they shouldn't stifle me. In. And when most parents, the initial reaction, just they just weren't that evolved or open to letting their kid try something like that at 17. And I get that. I understand that. So anyway, I got a lot of lucky breaks and a lot of love from a lot of great people. Top of the list, my folks, and uh, on from there. Amazing. And, you know, you have such, like I mentioned before in the Rock Cali episodes, vivid recollection and, and just vibrant stories. Do you do you feel a strong nostalgia to some of the the you know the early works that you did with Neil or Stills or um, with Grin? Is there and and I asked it also because you know I went to that tonight's the night everybody knows this is nowhere show where there was a bunch of songs that hadn't been played maybe ever live or maybe only at that uh, Roxy show fifty years ago. What, yeah, that was where's that, what that, that was like? the one off. Were you there night one or two? I was night one. Night one. Yeah, night two was our favorite of the two. Yeah. But they were both great. It's funny, night one, we had like a funky stage sound. And it was just kind of like, what the hell? And then Neil, because we didn't know. You know, sometimes, I mean, sometimes Neil will say, I don't feel like writing a set list. Let's just go out and play what we feel. <laughs> yeah. Now that's loose. But he said, you know what? I think we're going to do the entire Tonight's Tonight record front to back take a five minute break, do the entire everybody knows this is nowhere record. And we all knew that this would be the only time that ever happens. And we did it. And of course we did it again the next night. And you know, now we were used to what we were being thrown at. So the next night felt a little better, but both nights were great. And you know, I woke up and getting rave reviews about the first night. And I said, oh, I thought we sounded kind of funky from on stage, but I started going to YouTube and I realized Tim Mulligan, Long-time friend, way back with David Briggs, Neil's great sound man for decades and decades. What he did in the audience sounded great. You know, he didn't make the mix we heard on stage, which was kind of funky and raw. He made a made it all meld in the audience, and I had to say, "Man, Tim, you really made that night happen." Because on stage we couldn't hear what we needed. The next night we dragged Ralphie's drums out, so we were more a little on top of each other, and it was a better night for us but both nights in, in the in the room came out great and you know we're a raw funky band and we don't worry about it you know we just follow the rhythm section follow each other and having mike and nelson was so great because you know i play with mike a lot in the bridge school benefits with neil gone and seen him play with promise of the real but mike was kind of ghosting ben keith's parts on, you know, lap steel kind of thing. And he plays keyboards too. 
And it was just, and I said, look, man, you know, I'm obviously have a lot of experience on keyboards. I'll just go, you know, play the keyboards since you're used to playing guitar with Neil with Promise of the Real. A lot of the, like everybody knows this is nowhere album. And, you know, doing for Neil to do in the middle of this funky bar, noisy bar, you know, do songs like Round and Round. And, you know, I mean, all just to do the entire record was really beautiful and cool. So, hey, I hope I get to, I'm, I'm at this point, I'm just grateful as hell for my 55 years on the road and being all these great bands, those first two Ringo Starr All-Star bands. And, um, you know, getting to play with people like Branford Marsalis and Willie Nelson. I've just been really blessed. And it goes way back to those early days on um, after the gold rush, you know, driving down to Panga with David Briggs, cranking Clearwater, going, man, it's so great not to be the band leader. <laughs> All that shit went away. And I am, I've embraced that my whole time. You know, funny, I mean, it's Hollywood. It's the music business. I remember in 89 when Ringo called me. That's a whole other story. But long story short, I went in my first all-star band. And, uh, you know, someone was saying, some A&R guy I knew, I saw him, because I lived there in a rental house. I'd see him at a bar. Hey, you know, are you thinking this through? So what are you talking about? Well, you know, you got a solo career. And, you know, what's it going to look like taking time off and going to work in some other band? I said, dude, it's the Beatles drummer Ringo Starr's band. There's no, and I just was amazed that someone would question you know, the thought process. <laughs> but again, thankfully, I knew from my early young experience, thanks to my folks, Briggs and Neil, that, man, if your heart's in it, go do it. I mean, I've never had any big hit records. Not like I have some, you know, career to protect. And, oh, you mustn't be seen playing rhythm guitar for anyone else. Well, why not? I love it. So anyway, it's been a great ride, and I hope a lot more to come. That, that's amazing. And that Ringo All-Star Band, didn't it include like Dr. John and uh, Rick Dang? Well, that, 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 that's a good story. So I'm sitting here. I met Ringo in 85. We became friends. Talked to me. Come see me play in England where I went every year. And he said, I, I want in my first band. I said, you got to be kidding me. We're going to do a round robin. Everyone's going to do two or three of their own songs. Four months. Get your songs together. Here's where we start. We're going to rehearse at SIR in LA. And I'm, I'm like on cloud nine. Thank you, bless you. What this like the greatest phone call I ever got? Uh, and I went to say goodbye. I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you want to know who's in the band? I said, well, you're in the band, Ringo. He said, yeah, I'm in the band. I'm the band leader. I said, that's all I need to know. And he said, well, and he laughed. I said, okay, well, thank you. But let me tell you who's in the band. You and Joe Walsh on guitars. Dr. John on piano. Billy Preston on organ. Rick Danko and Levon Helm from the band. Jim Keltner as an all-night drummer, and your buddy Clarence Clemens on sax. I was like, excuse me? That's the band I'm in for four months? <laughs> Amazing. And, you know, I mean, even Ringo to this day will admit that's probably the greatest cast assembly of, of talented characters in history. Sounds like it. Are there are there any musicians that you you're still pining to play with after all these years that you that either you haven't well, you know, in a while? Well, you know, look, I've jammed with so many people. Um, you know, I 
a lot of them are gone. You know, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, Rita Franklin, mm-hmm. Etta James, um, uh, a lot of those old school R&B guys, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, and, you know, Prince would have been fun. I mean, but there's so many great players, and I, I don't even kind of like pine to play with anybody at this point because it's embarrassing wealth of riches when you look at who I've gotten to play with. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, not just Neil Young, it's Crazy Horse, Ben Keith, all the different bands, you know, uh, you know, Ringo's second all-star band, uh, the third tour I went and opened, I was the opening act on acoustic guitar. I just, it's, it's insane how many people I've gotten to work with. But again, I, I, thanks to Neil and Briggs, I learned at a young age, keep your heart and mind open because those things really, you know, keep you deep in music, but really take you away from that tunnel vision of solo artist things. And when you come back to it, it's like a real, like a vacation and you're refreshed, but you're not rusty, man. You've been down in it just, you know, as a, as a member of a great band. So it's all been a great ride. And, you know, I hope there's more to come. Knock, knock on wood. I mean, right now it's just 72, 55 years on the road, taking a little bit of a toll here and there. My wife, Amy, she's a professional cook, you know, all organic, juicing, health. She loves music. When we first started dating, I was like, ah, I don't know if, you know, I mean, she was beautiful, but I decided to be in relationship retirement after my second divorce. But we had a, a, a night at the Stone Pony. I met her at the Stone Pony like 15 years earlier and, um, you know, hung out, loved her. Uh, 6 a.m. the band bus went to Boston and I couldn't talk her into coming along. Didn't see her for 15 years. Thought she'd show up at another show in Jersey. She walks up at the end of a show at the Rockin' Horse here in Scottsdale, says, hi, remember me. We've been together ever since. But, you know, early on when we were talking, you know, I was on the road, we were talking three hours a day, wanted to see how she was about music because, of course, that's a deal breaker for me. And I asked her, do you like music, this and that? And she recited the entire lyric to In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. Mm. And turns out, you know, she's a lover of music. Like, look, music's the planet's sacred weapon. Billions of people a day turn to music to unite, to heal, to inspire, to comfort. Billions. And it remains, you know, I discovered that as a sacred weapon at five years old, studying music, just like to get out of my head and the torment of growing up. I'm 72 and you're still, you know, there's no age you reach. There's different challenges every point in your life. That's humanity. So to have that sacred weapon of music for all of us to turn to, uh, you don't need to play it. You just, you know, and I have a little guitar school at nosoftman.com for beginners and intermediate. And uh, people say, oh, I'm not, people used to say, I'm not allowed to play guitar. I said, why? Because I have no talent or rhythm. Well, who told you you need that? Oh, uh, I just thought you did. Would you love music? Oh my God, I love music. Well, then go find a teacher to teach you songs you like. If you're not going to make a living at it, you don't need any talent or rhythm. And you're probably wrong about that anyway, if you love music. Go take a lesson or just play. There's so much information. It's such a great, back then, back when I was in school, you know, you, you had to do an hour of gym, had to do an hour of like, you know, music or arts or something with the arts. That's been taken out of school, a lot of schools, which is ridiculous. Absolutely. I still remember, I think it was eighth grade, took this music one composition class 
then all of a sudden, you know, I have a big background because I've been playing since I was five. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, the assignment this month, you're going to write a string quartet. You know, they teach you how each instrument is, the bass clef and different clef. You're going to write a string quartet as your assignment. You'll be graded. At the end of the month, we're bringing a string quartet into the room and you all get to hear your piece. And I'm like, that's eighth grade. Man, if you did that for kids now and uh, give them an hour of athletics, um, we'd have a lot better, yeah, better, clearer minded students. But hey, I was lucky that that was my journey. And, um, you know, I, I've tried to put it to good use all these years. Well, you've done amazing, man. Thank you so much for all the great work, everything you've contributed to music, to music history. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. And I, I, I thank you. And a lot of people thank you. <laughs> Well, well, thank you, Scott, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Scott, yeah. I, I appreciate it. And, you know, I know I picked out a few albums, but just along the lines of all this inspiration and music as a sacred weapon, uh, the um, Between the Buttons album by the Rolling Stones with, yeah. you know, connection, con all these great early Stones things that were so, so raw, kind of reminded me of like Tonight's Tonight. You know, everything wasn't tight and put together. And back then, even the engineers, there were no drum machines, you know. Now, the Stones may have never used them, but it was just a funky era. And then, of course, um, Rubber Soul. I mean, Rubber Soul, are you kidding me? I mean, who could have a four-piece band that sounds like that? And the songs and the harmonies. And, you know, there's no auto-tune. And you, you got to realize, too, when the Beatles made what I think is the greatest body of recorded music, there were no tuners. There were no strobe tuners to help you tune your guitar. You had to sit there. And I mean, I used to remember Grin. We'd be playing at a million colleges. We'd have to find some quiet room and sit there. Sometimes it was 45 minutes. Well, we're in tune. You're in tune. How come we're not in tune? What the hell's up with that? And it was, it was, but you know, to make all those records, there was a tension in that too, you know, tuning that way without strobe tuners, everything's perfectly locked. And uh, Rubber Soul was like one of the, every record was great, but to me, that was the real, uh, you know, raw, kind of sophisticated, raw Beatles record, kind of an extension of their very first things and just learning to play for, you know, eight, nine hours a night in Hamburg and bars and becoming so good at playing with each other with no drum tracks, with no tuners. And it, it, one of the classic records, and then Hendrix, all his records were great, but Electric Ladyland had that Voodoo Child slight return. And, you know, all along the Watchtower, got to be one of the great covers of all time. I mean, I'm sure Bob Dylan heard that and went, yeah. Jesus, who, <laughs> I would have not thought of that. <laughs> Thank you, Jimi Hendrix. But there was just a, that was, I think, Jimmy, you know, crafting records like uh, House Still Burning, just mm -hmm. incredible record making. But then turn around and just have like a totally loose jam, you know, still rainy day, still raining, still dreaming, and just just jamming away. And, you know, I, I forget who was on the organ. I think it might have been Mike Finnegan. I know, um, hmm. you know, I don't know if it was Stevie Winwood. I forget. Yeah, there was an organ player. Wow. Yeah, Steve, Stevie Winwood on organ, Jack Cassidy yeah. on bass, which I didn't realize. Al Cooper on piano on Long Hot Summer Night. Oh, oh my you know, God. No, no, you're right. It's on Rainy Day and Still Rainy. It is Mike Finnegan 
Mike um, Finnegan. Oh my God, Mike was a, yeah. a great friend. I caught up with him in L.A. Called played played for years for everyone. Crosby Stills and Nash and Young yeah. in particular, especially Crosby Stills and Nash. Mike befriended me at a young age out there, and he was very cool and supportive. But yeah, just for for Jimmy to make a record like that, where there's this precision production, like all along the Watchtower, brilliant record making, and then turn around and have these long freeform jams. Jack Cassidy, oh my lord. It just it, the sixties were a blessing of uh, you know explosion of music, and it was really through the Beatles and Stones. Thanks to them, I discovered Stax Vault, Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf, Motown, and within like literally a month or two, I still kept taking accordion lessons, but I was possessed with this beautiful music, and then turned to it. And you know, Tommy teaching me guitar, playing in teen clubs, never entered my mind to be a pro. Jimi Hendrix changed all that. And then I get to thank him on my 19th birthday opening for him. So, man, talk about lucky. Dude, no, it all, all comes together. You play there, with, been, you play with Ringo. Down, yeah. there, there's been some down in the dumps times that might be a little too dark to talk about. But, yeah, uh, I mean, looking back, how blessed and lucky I've been. And, uh, again, you know, how hilarious to say, you know, I don't need to know who's in the band, Ringo. I'm playing with you. And then to find out that cast of characters. And, you know, it was great because Ringo's still doing it 33 years later. He just did a tour. Yeah. He's planning another one for next year. And, um, you know, he always said, look, I'm going to have it filmed. You know, we're not going to do makeup and all this and worry about it. I'm not worried about selling it. It's just a, a snapshot. So we have it, you know, like, a snapshot of time. This is who we were. This is our band. This is what we sounded like. And I kind of feel like uh, Rockality, my stories are a little bit of that, you know, because it's a lost time. There's no internet, no video. People can't even relate to that. And even if it was just local, we took pride in playing at teen clubs and practicing our asses off. And, that, and you know, that thing with people, that give and take with an audience is so sacred and beautiful. And we were all, you know, inspired by it and tried to pass that on. Uh, I had no idea at that time that my love of music was going to turn into a professional career, but it did. And uh, I, I just extraordinarily blessed. And obviously, um, end of the year, we were worried about Bruce having an ulcer, cancel 25 shows, and they have them all on the books now all rebooked yep. says he's doing great. We're going to go out and honor our commitments and get to play again. Very joyful, man. And I get to be home for another couple months and hang with Amy and our dogs and Dylan. So, uh, you know, as far as finding a balance between the obsession of music, which is all I did for decades, at some point you have to have a life and I've got a beautiful life. Knock on wood. I'll be here tomorrow, next year. And, not to be greedy, I'll take every, as Bruce says, all that heaven will allow. I'll take it. Well, I appreciate it. Let me let me ask you one last question. If you got a, a couple minutes, just yes, to, I do. To tie back to tie back to the record, and to tie back to between the buttons, you got Charlie Watts right here, and on yep. on the new record, you got a song "Won't Cry No More" from Charlie Watts. Maybe if uh, you don't mind leaving us with a little recollection of your friendship with Charlie or what Charlie meant or how, you know, obviously his passing inspired the song, but how, you know, 
how you you deal with these consumer losses. I know even and uh, and now it's multiple questions, but in your uh, record before you did a new, uh, Lou Reed record where you honored him with songs you've previously written, and on that album you had a song for Tom Petty, "Be Your Heartbreaker." Um, right. So you know all these all these losses. How do you how do you process it? And then both uh, any recollection of Charlie for uh, yeah, you know. Um... Of course, I wrote a song, Keats Don't Go. The yeah. Beatles and the Stones were, you know, the, the impetus that got me off classical accordion and opened the doors to the explosion of rock and roll. Uh, I love both bands still to this day. I've gone and seen them play a lot. I saw the Beatles once. Uh, tickets were four, five, and six dollars <laughs> at DC Stadium. God bless my dad. He took me. But, um, Seen the Stones, I've gotten backstage, I've said hi to him, I've gotten to meet Charlie Watts. It's just kind of a chilling thing to be around heroes like that. And um, at 72, you know, I, I've, I've lost a lot of dear family members, a lot of dear friends over the years. But um, when we lost Charlie Watts, I wasn't ready for that. It really hit me in a strange, powerful way, in, in, in a bad way. I, I just... He represented something that I just, I, intellectually, I know no one's here forever, but I just saw the stones like, yeah, they'll, they'll be here for my forever. Yeah. And it really shook me up. Um, I remember Amy and I went to see Tom Petty's last tour, never thinking we'd not see him again up at Red Rocks. They weren't playing Phoenix. And after we lost Tom Petty, I would say for a year, my wife Amy and I cursed loudly in our home every day. We were so hurt and angry. That kind of happened to me with Charlie. I, I wasn't ready for it. I, and I intellectually just didn't have the tools to process. And I was really angry, really grief stricken. And it just shook, shook me up to my core in a way that was very uncomfortable and unsettling. Okay, so one morning I'm making this album, Mountains, I get up and I just got this blues riff. And I just saw, you know, I also started listening to Stone's records and tuning into Charlie's drumming and just kind of a reverent focus on that, trying to find some kind of healing and way to process his loss. And finally, this one morning, Charlie's gone, so I heard him today. And um, I just, this song came out and it was kind of a way to deal with like, you know, I, I was so rageful, I thought, Damn it, I'm not going to cry anymore. You know, life's just too hard. I, 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 I know intellectually people die every There's, you know, genocide all over the world. Yeah, the world's on fire. But in my little world of music that, you know, the Beatles and Stones opened the door to a life 55 years later, making a living, beautiful opportunities to share music. The sacred weapon of music became also a professional journey to share, which I couldn't believe. And um, I started writing this song. It went on and on, won't cry. And it, the words kept coming, the words kept coming. And then near the end of the song, damn it, I'm crying again. Tears are coming down my face. But at least it was a cathartic way to kind of honor Charlie and wrestle with his loss. That for me was helpful. Of course, the great Cindy Mizell sang her ass off. And I remember at the, finally when I, at the word stopped coming, I said, yeah, this might be it. And, you know, this is the first song in 55 years, no bridge, mm -hmm. no chord changes, one chord, one riff. 
It's about the, the emotion of, of processing that loss and trying to honor Charlie and what he gave us and say, all right, let's pick it up and go, man. You're still here. I'm still hearing you. I know you're coming through. I know, you know, I believe the spirits of people live on and I believe his spirits with us. And he was with me uh, making this record too. That's what I believe. But man, trying to access it through writing this song was tough. It was a rough chapter losing him. It's a great song and it's a great album. So Nils, thank you so much for everything. I look forward to seeing you on the road with Bruce uh, sometime this year. And yes, Scott, I, I'm so great to do this with you. Uh, you know, vinyl's back, of course, has been oh, for yeah. a long time. But, um, you know, really was happy to get Mountains Done and Out. I really feel great about it. Thanks for spreading the word. And, oh, hey, maybe, uh, who knows, you know. I, I talk to Neil regularly, and, um, you know, he's a pretty beautiful, I mean, one of our all-time greats, no better songwriter. And, uh, like I said, he's got a... Between tonight's tonight and uh, all the projects I've done and being in Crazy Horse, we're a very loose, funky, powerful, emotional band. Maybe you'll see me out there with them on some of the breaks with Bruce this year. You know, that would be that so would that, be a dream. That would be. A dream. I used to go to, I you know, it's kind of a joke, but I'd go to the management. You know, like Frank Gironda. Um, We lost Elliot Roberts, loved Elliot, but I go to them or John Landau. Like, hey, between E Street Band and Crazy Horse. I have 90 years in, 90 years. Don't you think I've earned the right to make your touring schedule for a year or two? So there's no conflicts. I can play with both bands. And they go, get lost. <laughs> they don't want to hear it. And I remember before the pandemic hit, Scott, um, the same week, John Landau called, Bruce's manager. Bruce wants you to know you're free all year. No plans. Next year, we're going out all year and play. Great. Thank you. Not, a lot of times you don't get that much, you know, advance notice about things. Same week, Neil calls. Look, I want to go play. I'm not doing that. We got to wait 10 months and organize a tour. I got these old buildings. No one plays in. We're going to go out in seven weeks. I what? All year if we're having fun. But we're going to have fun. So all of a sudden, Amy was laughing at me because I was like a kid, you know, like all year I'm going to tour with Neil and Crazy Horse, come home for the holidays, all next year with East Street Band. I was like, no conflicts. This is a dream come true. Three weeks later, the world shuts down with COVID. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, been recording, making great records with Neil. We have played some shows and I'm so proud of Bruce for you know, rebooking all the shows we lost to get back to those towns and honor our commitment and get out there and play, man. So sky's the limit. I'll keep trying to stay on top of my act and uh, healthy and hope there's more to come. Maybe I'll see it in another Crazy Horse show. Uh, you, I will be wherever there's a Crazy Horse show, especially in California. I will be in the front. Yeah, and I, I got to just say another shout out to Mike Nelson, man. Having him yeah. with us. There's like this Dixieland jazz rock kind of thing that happened with Ben Keith where, you know, me and Neil are swing guys, you know, keyboard, guitar. Ben can play keyboards too. But to have the three kind of bopping and weaving improv things, having Mike add that third now, the Roxy shows were incredible. And we did a, a private gig up in Toronto. Just beautiful having him with us. Great, great soul. And uh, 
you know, thanks, William. Uh, you know, both both kids are in uh, Lucas and yeah. and Micah were with Promise of the Real for a long time. Another great band. But anyway, been all great. All the Sacred Weapon of Music. Great talking to you, Scott. And thanks Mr. for Nils. spreading Thank the you, brother. I'll catch you all soon. All right, man. Cheers. All the best. Bye. Cheers.